morning, church. So glad you're here to worship with us. If you would, as you're having a seat, uh, grab a Bible, if you have it, uh, and open up to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We began a series that we're calling Gospel Culture last week, and it's uh, really just the start of a series that we're walking through verse by verse through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, the book of Philippians. And so we're calling it Gospel Culture uh, because as Paul writes this letter, as he addresses this church, he's really teaching what does it mean to have the gospel at the center uh, of the heart of this church and this people. Uh, And so this comes out all over the place. And we as a church, as we uh, walk into this new year, into this new season, uh, into this new building that we'll be moving into in the new year, we want to be a people first and foremost, not marked by a place or a building or cozy chairs or uncomfortable chairs, but we want to be a people marked and centered on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and have uh, that be our fuel and our passion and our aim. Uh, And so we thought Philippians is going to be a great uh, place for us to uh, dig in and see what he has for us uh, in the weeks and months ahead as we dive into Philippians. Real quick, before we jump into the text, I wanted to give you all a quick update on our elders and our elder structure. Uh, David Neuenschwander, who's actually on slides in the back. David, if you want to wave, if everyone wants to awkwardly look at David right now, he's back there. Uh, David has been on a season of rest as an elder. He's been, he has served uh, for a number of years as an elder, and so there are potential particular seasons where we just want to give uh, some of the elders just a season of of rest when they're not uh, serving in that role so that they can continue to invest and pour into their family uh, and uh, not all the responsibilities of uh, what elder means as a local church. But David is rolling back on to serve as an elder. So welcome back, David. We're grateful to have you uh, jumping back into uh, the role as elder. Uh, and Daniel Moore, who has been serving with us as elder, he's going to be kind of uh, 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 taking a season of rest as an elder for, I believe, the next six months, I believe, uh, maybe longer. We're just going to kind of keep an eye on his heart and just his rhythms. And uh, when the time is right for him to roll back on, we want to give him a season where he's uh, not serving that capacity. Daniel has been spearheading a lot of different things over the last really a couple years, last year in particular, uh, uh, he's done a fantastic job of serving this local uh, family and this local body. So Daniel is going to be uh, taking a season of rest, a really sabbatical, if you will, from that role as elder for the next at least six months. And so just want to let you all know that uh, on the front end, just some uh, leadership sort of shifting there, uh, but we're still excited and uh, we know that the Lord is going to continue to move in and through the elders that we have now uh, and grateful that David's rolling back on with us. So Philippians chapter one, our verses that we're gonna be in this morning are 12 through 18. I'm gonna read them and then we're gonna unpack what the Lord might have for us uh, this morning. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi beginning in verse 12, Philippians. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, 
but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, before we unpack that, I want to give us a little bit of a backstory about this church that was planted, a little bit of history and context I think will bring some uh, color to this church in Philippi that was planted. A lot of times when we we take verses or we take uh, different passages. We kind of tend to, just in our minds, we maybe unplug them from the story that's happening and the context and sort of um, the soil, if you will, of all that had happened in the lives of these people. And so I think it's helpful to know what's going on here. Who are these people? Who is this church the Apostle Paul is writing to so that we don't just sort of unplug uh, verses from the context of uh, all that has happened in the lives of this church that, is, uh, that Paul is writing to. So uh, from the just at the, outs, at the outset, this is obviously a letter the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that was planted in Philippi in a place to a people. And so the backstory is that Paul had gone to the city, had gone to the city in Philippi, and he planted this church. He started this church through the sharing of the gospel. And if you want to read, I would encourage you, here's some homework as we're going to be journeying through uh, this letter, go back and read Acts 16. So the story of Paul establishing the church in Philippi is found in Acts chapter 16. So Paul, what he would do uh, uh, most frequently when he was going into a new place as an apostle, he would walk into this new city that he was going to, and he would try to first and foremost find a synagogue. If there was a synagogue in that region, he would try to go and he would open the text and he would open God's word and he would show them Christ as the Messiah from the, from the scriptures that they would have. And so he would go preach Christ as the Messiah that they'd all been searching for and waiting for. And so as Paul goes into Philippi, there was no synagogue. So he, he finds himself down at this river uh, and he meets this woman, this lady named Lydia. So Lydia is the first person that he encounters as he realizes there's no synagogue in this town. So he finds, goes down by the river, Lydia's there. And Lydia is this interesting woman. She's an interesting backstory. We're given a little bit of color about who she is and what she's all about. Uh, Lydia has a place, a home in Philippi. Uh, but she was from another place in Asia Minor, which means she was most likely Asian. And she had moved into Philippi. The text also tell us, tells us what she did for a living, her job. It says that Lydia was a seller of purples in Acts chapter 16. So it means that she sold clothing or she sold accessories that were dyed. Uh, this purple color, which was unique, which was beautiful. And so she had this industry. She had this career and this job that she sold dyed purple goods to people in this region. Essentially, if you were to translate into modern context, she was a fashion CEO, right? So she had a good eye for what looked good, what was nice. She had access to this special dye that would make things purple that were unique. And so she uh, built this business, if you will, and she now had a home in this region in Philippi, and Paul meets this woman, Lydia, at the river. Uh, the text in Acts 16 tells us that Lydia was a God-fearer, interestingly enough, and uh, many commentators believe that this means that she did once serve or worship pagan gods, but had become a Jew, so she had become Jewish. Now, she was a little bit confused. Who is God? What is he like? Um... 
so she's a little bit confused as to who God is, uh, like a lot of people in our culture today. And so Paul meets Lydia, and he connects all the dots with who God is, and he presents the Lord Jesus Christ, shares the gospel with her, that Jesus, the Messiah, came, lived the perfect life, died a brutal death, rose again so that those who believe him by faith may have eternal life with him and their sins forgiven. Lydia believes in Jesus, she is saved, and she becomes the first member of the church in Philippi. And then Paul goes on. If you keep reading in Acts 16, we get this beautiful window into the first members of this new church. So he meets a young Greek demonized woman. It's like, whoa, okay? So this woman clearly has a lot of issues. There's a lot going on with this woman. We don't have time to unpack it all of it. She's a slave. She's economically impoverished. She is possessed by a demon. People are using and abusing her. Paul rolls in. He deals with this demonic spirit. Uh, This woman meets Jesus, second member of the church in Philippi. Shares the gospel. Deals with the demon. Second member. Then Paul and Silas, as they are leaving this scene, as they're uh, moving away, uh, they get thrown in jail for proclaiming Jesus, for sharing the gospel, for talking about this Messiah, King Jesus, that has come to rule and reign. And word gets out, and these, uh, and Paul and Silas, who are there on this missionary journey, get thrown in jail. They're being tortured by this Roman jailer. They're being beaten, they're put in stocks, they're being tortured. This Roman soldier, this is literally what he does for a living. He tortures the prisoners that are in this prison, and this is what's happening to Paul and Silas as they're in stocks and as they're in chains, and something dramatic happens. They begin singing and praising God and singing hymns as they're in stocks being beaten by this Roman jailer, and he's never seen anything like it. God does some miraculous things like earthquakes and the shaking of the walls and a lot of uh, amazing things happen. And this jailer is like wide-eyed and like, what is going on here? Who is this God that these men are singing to in chains? And the Roman jailer asks the question that all of us pray that our non-Christian friends and family might ask us. They ask, who is this God that you serve? And they get to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ with this Roman jailer. And there we have uh, the third member of the church in Philippi. How's that for a core group? As a church planter, that's like, okay, fashion CEO, that's cool. Greek demonized woman with a ton of issues. And then uh, a professional torturer who was torturing Paul. You're like, let's put them all together and here's the church. These, the, these are the people. These, this is the team that starts the gospel work ministry in Philippi as Paul plants this church. And when I say plant church, a lot of us are like, well, what, did, what does that mean? Did he like buy a build? I'm saying when we say plant a church, what oftentimes happens and what is normative in the New Testament is the planting of churches are planted where disciples are made, where the gospel is shared, where the good news of Jesus is proclaimed and, and said out loud. The proclamation of the gospel happens. Jesus saves people and then disciples are made and they're gathered together and they form a church because a church isn't a building, but it's a people 
people. And so they most likely, this early church most likely would have met probably in Lydia's home or somewhere around it because they had a place and they utilized the resources that God had given the church wherever the churches were planted. So here they are, this ragtag group of three that, that continued to grow as the gospel was continued to be proclaimed. And here, Paul is writing to this church 12 years later. So he's writing back to this church that he helped plant, that he um, got to proclaim the good news of the risen Lord Jesus Christ to all of these different people. And Paul has a deep affection for these people. As we learned uh, walking through the introduction uh, last week, he loved this church. Paul, as he writes this church, just so you know, he is in jail again. So he is in prison. He's on trial for his life for proclaiming another king that is not Caesar. And so he's writing back to this church as a prisoner. And Paul loved this church. In fact, this church that was planted in Philippi supported Paul and his missionary ministry most likely more than any other church that he writes to in his epistles. They loved him. He loved them. He They held Paul in high esteem. He held them in high esteem. And when they found out he was on trial for his life, this church didn't take a step back and say, whoa, let's disassociate. This might might go bad for us if the Romans find out we support this guy and he's in prison. No, they lean in. They, They bring more support, more love, more encouragement. In fact, they send Epaphroditus for gifts and support to the apostle Paul. They loved Paul and he loved them. And so last week we saw Michael did an awesome job unpacking the introduction that these people, Paul was writing them and encouraging them for their singular devotion and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the results of that singular passion and joy is that Paul talks about, man, I just, I love our joy and partnership in gospel ministry. He talks about how they are partners in gospel ministry, that they're in it together because God has called them to it. And then Paul's thankfulness for this partnership in gospel ministry evokes a great confidence in Paul for how God is working in their life. If you remember, just to recap verse 6, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I love that verse. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I have hung my life on those words. And if you are a Christian, you have hung your life on those words. It is a marvelous statement. And then out of that deep well of thanksgiving for their partnership and his confidence of of what God is going to do in their lives... He moves to his affection for them. We get to see more of Paul's heart being poured out for these people, how he loves them. Verses seven and eight, he says, therefore, because of this confidence, because of the partnership in the gospel, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. It almost says y'all, but it translates it differently. (laughs) I'll, I'll contact Crossway later. It is right for me to feel this way about y'all. I'm just going to go for it. Because I hold you in my heart. 
because I hold you in my heart, for you are partakers with me in the grace, both in my imprisonment and for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all affection in Jesus Christ. Um, those separated by chains and imprisonment. Paul communicates his deep yearning affection for these people because of their love for Jesus Christ and their love for him. So just that right there is a window into why we're calling this a gospel culture. This is the root. This is the reason for their love. It is because of the work that Jesus has done and in through Paul and in and through these people and it binds them together and now all of these people are near and dear to Paul's heart. His affection and yearning is for these people because of Christ. That's a gospel culture. They deeply care about Paul, and Paul deeply cares for them. Church, just real practically for us, I, I long for that type of yearning and love to exist here. I want it to continue. I know, it, I know that, it's, that that is here. I want that to happen more and more and more and more that we would yearn and long to be together, that we would yearn and long to worship Jesus together, that our culture of how we care for each other, how we love one another, how we serve one another would be birthed out of all that the Lord Jesus has done in and through and longs to do in and through us. And it would continue to just pile up on each other. This idea of what Paul's describing as the culture within this church and his love for this church kind of redefines how we oftentimes think about culture and friendship and relationship. See, it's way more than just like ice cream socials every now and again with my church friends. In fact, the idea of church friends wouldn't even, like, this is my family. These are my people. I yearn from them with great affection. Like, this is a familial type love that Paul is communicating. And this is the culture. This is a culture only built and only formed on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a gospel intoxicating culture. It permeated everything. Permeated everything. And was held together by the blood, sweat, and tears of gospel partnership. And that produced real joy. It was not sentimental. It was real. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. Now to our text, verse 12. <clears throat> chapter, one, chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So now he exalts, after talking about his affection, after talking about partnership, after talking about his yearning for these people, he says, now I want you to know what's happened to me, meaning I'm in jail, I'm in chains, I am away from you in prison. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Underline that word, advance the gospel. He exalts in the advancement of the gospel, which for Paul is the main thing. 
It is the greatest thing. It is his abiding passion in life, the advancement of the gospel. We're going to see this word, gospel, come up all the time in Paul's letter to the Philippian church. In fact, he mentions this nine times, the noun gospel. That is more per page than any other book of the Bible. It is just gospel packed. He says it. He talks about it. He's applying the gospel. He's helping us understand it. That's why we're calling this a gospel culture because Paul keeps ringing that bell. He's passionate about the gospel. And when he says the gospel, when he says that word, he means the preaching, the declaration, or the proclamation that Christ died for our sins was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So Paul's talking about the the proclamation, the spoken good news of what Jesus has done and the applied work on our lives if we would believe by faith in this one that has come, the promised Messiah. So we use that word a lot in the church. If you are in sort of the evangelical waters, if you swim in those waters, the word gospel-centered comes up a lot, and it's a beautiful word. I love that word. Uh, We all love gospel-centered ministry. We like to read the Gospel Coalition. We like to have uh, gospel-centered books. We All those are wonderful and good, but a lot of times we say it, and we lose track of really what it's actually trying to say. And what I think what Paul gets to here in Philippians is he helps define what a gospel-centered life really means. For Paul, it means this, the advancement of the gospel through Jesus, the, the reality of the good news of Jesus being uh, applied to our hearts at changing our lives and then us being sent out to advance that gospel through the proclamation of the good news that Christ died for our sins and that he rose again according to the scriptures and those who believe by faith would have life everlasting and their lives changed radically for his glory and our good. So Paul keeps ringing this bell. It's about preaching the gospel, not the results of the gospel, necessarily. It's about proclaiming the gospel, advancing the gospel. And Paul's almost fixated on this. Um, He talks about it in verse 12, the advance of the gospel, verse 16, the defense of the gospel. And then he uses three phrases as we go on in this that really are synonymous with preaching the gospel. He says to speak the word, to preach Christ, and to proclaim Christ. He just keeps ringing that bell. And he does so about six times. He emphasizes the gospel. But for Paul, the advancement of the gospel overrides everything in his life. Paul's life is consumed to this end. And if we fail to understand that, we really fail to understand Paul's ministry and what he's doing, what he feels called to do. If we don't understand that advancing the gospel is getting the proclamation of the good news of Jesus out to a people saved by the gospel, in love with the gospel, we don't understand Paul's ministry and we don't understand what he's calling his church to, not his church, Jesus' church to. Um, And what this does is it leaves no doubt what Paul's writing about the gospel's progress when he is in chains in Rome. I want you to know, brothers, verse 12 and 13, that what has happened to me 
has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So what's he talking about here? To the whole imperial guard. So there are probably, commentators believe, about 9,000 imperial troops or the uh, Praetorian guard as they are called other places. And these Roman imperial troops had special privilege. They were like an elite force. They were um, oftentimes had double pay. They had special pensions. They had special duties that they were in charge of. These were high-level elite troops that had risen through the ranks and now were sort of at the top tier of the Roman army, the imperial guard. These were These were... The cream of the crop, essentially. One of their not-so-fun tasks would be that they, being a part of the Imperial Guard, as part of one of their rotations and serving as a soldier in the Imperial Guard is that they would have to be chained to a non-violent prisoner. So if they weren't behind bars and they weren't like in a cell, but they were still imprisoned like the Apostle Paul would have been who could receive visitors and different things like that as we read through his epistles, they would have to be chained to one of these prisoners so they wouldn't just waltz away. I'm sure they loved that. Um, And here, amazingly enough, Paul viewed this as an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. Paul got a captive audience. Every change of the Roman imperial guard, the cream of the crop, the elite soldiers in Caesar's army who were the very top of the top guys leading in this this place of power, Paul is literally chained to them and says, you get to hear the gospel today. Captive audience, for however long the shift change was, Paul articulates the good news of Jesus, who he is, what Jesus has done, how he died, how he rose again, and how through belief and faith in this one that has come, even they, a Roman imperial guard, can come to saving faith and have life everlasting through Jesus Christ. And the result was exponential. Soldier after soldier hearing the gospel again and again. Soldier after soldier uh, chained to Paul, getting to hear, and maybe Paul even reading letters he may have received or having conversations with other Christians who were also put in prison that were also chained as they were encouraging one another as they were in chains with other believers. And these troops began to hear the gospel in dynamic ways and hear believers speak to each other in dynamic ways. And they heard the astonishing truth of this Messiah that was prophesied from the scriptures, from a people who were longing for this Messiah to come and that he did come and that he died according to the scriptures, just like it was told and foretold in the scriptures. And he was resurrected just as the scriptures foretold. And because of this death and resurrection, this death and resurrection was atonement for those who would believe by faith. And they started to believe, the imperial guard. And they heard, you also can be forgiven. 
And Paul's imprisonment brought the gospel to the seat of secular power through the imperial guard while he was in chains. And we know, you're like, well, that's speculation. It just says that he was, you know, he was, he was there and he was there to advance the gospel. How do you know that these people actually came to faith? Well, we're given a glimpse into that. We're given an answer to that because at the very end of the letter, as Paul ends this letter, we're at the very beginning, he tells us so. That his proclamation of the gospel to the imperial guard has produced brothers in Christ as a result. Philippians 4, 21 through 22. I don't think it's going to be on the screen. At the very end, the very last verses, greet every saint in Jesus Christ. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. Catch this. Especially those of Caesar's household. He's in Caesar's house in jail. And he just called them brothers. They came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because Paul's, no matter where he was, no matter what he was doing, his heart was to advance the gospel to anyone around him because he knew it was life. His imprisonment had not hindered the gospel. It actually served to advance the gospel. And as the gospel advances into places of power, it advances, then trickles down into Christian community. Um, Philippians 1.14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Um, sometimes, well, I mean, you could almost argue almost all the time throughout church history, persecution, persecution is often just what the doctor ordered in order for us to get over our fears, to be bold in our proclamation of this good news. Oftentimes comfort lulls us into thinking Oh, maybe I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to seem weird. I don't want to, let's just, let's just keep the peace. Let's just not ruffle any feathers. But oftentimes, as you look at church history, persecution, when it comes down on the church, actually serves to advance the gospel and, and bolsters boldness in the lives of believers in Christ. Uh, if you don't believe me, pick up an autobiography of a missionary, pick up a book on, pick up some of Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot's books, um, Through the Gates of Splendor. Read the, her, her book, The Shadow of the Almighty, where it talks about persecution, where it talks about the proclamation of the gospel who are against what you're saying, but then to see the results and the boldness that's happened as a result of believers standing on the good news of the gospel and continuing to proclaim it even in hard places. Read the diary of Jim Elliot, where he gives us this unbelievable statement about the advancement of the gospel. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. If I could wish something for everyone here this morning, um, it would be that our church would be marked with a gospel culture. And I often wonder, what is it going to take in our generation to catalyze that movement? What is it going to take? Is it going to take, it's going to take 
us. It's going to take some of us taking that next step of boldness, even when it's difficult, even when you don't want to because you're comfortable, but you know that the Lord's calling you to proclaim the good news of the gospel to someone who's far off that needs him, and to take that next step in the boldness of gospel proclamation, even when met with um, not fun words back to you produces boldness in the lives of other believers in Christ because we can encourage one another. We can help bear one another's burdens and those stories begin to permeate a culture of God's people who are bold for the proclamation of the gospel. And this is exactly what Paul is saying happened in this church in Philippi. He's saying my imprisonment what would seem like a dead end actually has served to take previously timid believers who didn't want to say anything begin to speak the word without fear. Um, I know many of us are timid and many of us sometimes we're just unsure. Well, what do I say? How do I say it? Um, I want to encourage you, church, as you're moving throughout your day, pray that the Lord might give you opportunity to speak with boldness the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. God gives us so many opportunities throughout our day. He gives us so many opportunities, whether that be with a neighbor, with a family member, with a friend, with your next door neighbor, whoever it might be. Would you pray and ask the Lord would give you a boldness to take a step of faith, to actually articulate the hope you have in the Lord Jesus Christ and be a proclaimer of this good news, the gospel, that Paul is so passionate about and he's so excited that this church in Philippi is leaning into and proclaiming of their own. Um, <clears throat> so that's some really great things that are happening. Now, Paul describes an issue that comes up here at the last part of our text. Verse 15 describes this, this, this issue. Um, verse 15 says this, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. And you're like, envy and rivalry? Those are some ugly terms. Uh, these terms pop up in other places uh, as vices of the unsaved. I don't think that this is what Paul is talking about because they're preaching Christ. So you're like, what's going on here? This word envy is a, uh, is a horrible word. Um, a Greek historian gives us a helpful de definition of this word envy. It says, the envious are those annoyed at their friend's success. That's pretty good. The envious are those annoyed at their friend's success. So envy is, is this, as I was thinking about this word. Envy is, is based on the thought of depriving another person, most likely someone you know or someone who is your friend, of wanting to deprive another person of something because you want it for yourself and you despise the fact that they actually have it because you think you deserve it more than they do. That's envy. Envy is a form of hatred, really. They, why do they have that? 
I should have that. I wish they didn't have it, and I wish I did have it. Because oftentimes, envy, if you let that root into your heart, it's not just that you wish what someone else had. Envy, when it starts to really get its tentacles down in you, actually begins to say, I wish, not only do I want that, but I wish they didn't have it. And that I did so that more people would want what I only have. And it's an ugly emotion. And it's not from the Lord. Um, So in terms of what's going on with Paul here, Paul has this amazing resume of ministerial achievements to his name, doesn't he? He was gifted, he was an apostolic leader, he had planted all these churches, he'd taken the gospel into the innermost reaches of the places of power, he'd stood and defended the gospel in these places of of, uh, academia and of religious institutions and synagogues and even um, uh, before the Roman imperial guard. So Paul's, Paul's reputation was known by other people, by other church leaders, and they look at Paul and they begin to be envious. I want that. I want to have that reputation. And it began this rivalry amongst churches and church leaders. I'm so glad that doesn't happen today, <laughs> ever. This is a thing of the past. We've all grown up out of that. This exists today in very real ways. We live in a culture that other churches and Christians and church leaders Unfortunately, there's just not a lot of gospel collaboration that happens because there's a tremendous amount of, depending on where you are and what's going on and who you know and who you don't, the envy and territorialism and all sorts of, we put walls up, all sorts of things happen like this. And this was happening in Paul's day. This is not new for us today either. Now, the, on the other hand, the majority preach Christ with goodwill. He says that in verse 16. The latter do it out of love. I, I Praise God. Knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So I understand preaching the gospel out of love, but preaching out of ill will. Who are these people? I was thinking about this because I was like, this is a strange passage to me. I was kind of grappling with this. For starters, as I look at this, they're not heretics. He doesn't call them out as unbelievers or as anathema like he does in Galatians. If they were preaching a different Christ and they were preaching a false gospel, Paul would have stood up and he would have called them out and said they are preaching another gospel altogether and and if you believe that, you're damned like he does in Galatians. He doesn't say that about these these people. So they're not heretics. They're not preaching another gospel. Uh, they just don't like Paul. It's like, oh, okay, there's turf wars even back then. Um, they weren't anti-Christ, but they were anti-Paul. And you're like, oh, that feels so ugly. And it is, which is why I think Paul brings it up here. They preached out of rivalry and selfish ambition. They were territorial, they were calculated, and they had as their motivation self-promotion. Now, if there is a reason to be downcast, I mean, Paul's in prison after all, and he gets word about all these other people who are like kind of jabbing him while he's in this place of prison Uh, this would be a good place to be like, and I'm so sad, and I'm so low, and I'm so depressed. Woe is me. But there's no pity party. 
There's no why me. There's no send me more help because I've got to get through this. No, his, his response is astonishing. Verse 18, what then in light of these people? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul was so gospel-saturated, so centered on getting the news of Jesus Christ out and proclaiming Christ as Messiah that his feelings in the moment were secondary to the advancement of the gospel. That's incredible. That's a gospel culture. And he's encouraging this Philippian church to have that same mind. Don Carson, great theologian, and writer puts it this way, he says, put the advancement of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. And then he adds, our comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputation, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant with the comparison of the advancement and splendor of the gospel. Church, as Christians, we also are called to advance the gospel at the center of our aspirations. What are your aspirations here this morning? What bubbles to the, to the top for you? Is it to make a lot of money? Is it to get married? Is it to travel and see the world? Is it to see your grandchildren grow up? Is it to find that new job that you've always dreamed about? Is it to retire early? None of those are bad. None of those are to be despised. But the question is this. Do these aspirations become so devouring, become so preeminent in our lives that the the Christian central aspiration of seeing Christ magnified and the gospel advanced is squeezed out to the fringes of our life or worse yet, gone altogether in our minds and our hearts? Because that can happen so easily. The centrality of the gospel, a gospel culture question for us is this here this morning. Is the gospel first and foremost in our lives and in our church? And that, the answer to that question will determine our future, our future decisions, our boldness in Christ, and our culture as a people of risen church is the advancement of this gospel and people far from him and even in the advancement of the gospel and people that are right here with us that we can continue to know and believe where we have trouble to believe is that paramount in our lives is that the at the center of what we are trying to see the advancement of the gospel the proclamation of Jesus Christ and what he's done and what he longs to do in and through us. So in closing today, I want us to, uh, as the band comes back up, will you, will you do me a favor? Will everyone uh, just take a posture of prayer here this morning? If that's on your knees, if that's closing your eyes, that's sitting quietly. Um, I'd like us to consider this question. Who... Who is God calling you to share this good news with? Who is God calling you to articulate and proclaim 
the saving truth of the gospel with. See, this is not a task for just church leaders and pastors. This is for all that know and love Jesus. Who is your captive audience like Paul and that imperial guard who at every shift change is right there with him? Who do you see on a regular basis that's in your life that routinely shows up that is far from God? Is it on your kids' sports teams? Is it a coworker? Is it a neighbor? Is it a family member? Is it a child? audience for you? Who in your sphere of influence has God placed around you right now? That's not a random opportunity. That is not a random person. That is an opportunity for you, Christian, to advance the gospel through sharing the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. Maybe you're in here today and you, even at the thought of that, feel timid. Oh, I can't, I don't know how to do that. I don't even know how to enter in. Would you pray now for boldness? Knowing that even now around the world, there are those suffering persecution as they proclaim the good news of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And men, women, and children are coming to saving faith because of the bold proclamation of this good news. Would that birth in you a boldness knowing that other saints are moving in that direction as gospel proclaimers like Paul. Church, God invites us into his wonderful mission. He does not just save us to have us just over here on one little section. He saves us to send us in every place that you find yourself, there are opportunities that I believe God wants us to move into to begin to speak this good news to those who are far from him. pray for each one of my brothers and sisters here in this room. Would you give them opportunity? Would you have that person cross their path this week? Would you have them pick up the phone and make that phone call that they know that they should make? And would you present just an opportunity 
to encourage and to proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and may life change happen as a result. And Lord, I pray that as we do that, that we would, as a church, be able to uh, tell one another about how these things are going so we can continue to pray and that when, Lord, you save as only you can through the proclaiming good news, uh, we would get to hear news of you changing lives and it would produce in us a boldness to be involved in your great mission. Lord, we love you and we trust that you will do a work in and through us. Lord, give us obedience to walk in it this week, this month, and this year. In Christ's name, amen. Church, let's stand.